Yeah, you guys ready for that? <clears throat> Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you once again for just your love and your mercy upon us, Lord, that we can come into a place like this today and, Lord, just to find rest in you and peace and grace and be overwhelmed by your presence. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship. And, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, today, <clears throat> that we who call ourselves Christians would live like Christians. And, Father, I decrease that you would increase. I am to myself of myself, so fill me with yourself that everything that I say and do every thought that enters my mind will be of you and not of me. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app or... Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to cover all of chapter 6 today. We're now in part 9 of our series from the heart. Say from the heart. From the heart, yeah. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as always, before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text. That was chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And I gave you two points. And the first point of last week's text was the motivation for ministry. Say that. And that's found in verses 11 through 17. And Paul was motivated to keep sharing the gospel about how we have been given the privilege, say privilege, come on, say privilege, of reconciling people to God, right? And you see, the controlling factor of, of Paul's life, of his ministry, was the love of Christ as seen in Christ's death. And Paul's point is that our experience of Christ's love moves us, or should move us, right, moves us or should move us to a new perspective, uh, to look at others through the eyes of God and see their greatest need. And that greatest need is reconciliation and salvation in Christ, and that Christ can change them. If you believe that, say amen. And he, verse 17, he, he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, say in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. The second point of last week's text message was the message of reconciliation, the message of of reconciliation. That, that's in verses 18 through 21. And there we saw the act of reconciliation, and the act of rec reconciliation was accomplished by God, right? It was God-centered. And then the method of reconciliation was in Jesus, say in Jesus, taking our sins upon himself. And the ministry, say ministry, of reconciliation is our job. That's our job. God has entrusted us, say entrusted, come on, say entrusted, us with the privilege of sharing this great, amazing message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors, right? Ambassadors who share the message of reconciliation, and we should share this message of reconciliation, get this now, with the sense of urgency. Got it? With the sense of urgency. And then in verse 21, which is the gospel in one verse, Paul writes, God made him who had no sin, him speaking of Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took our place. He not only took our place, he also took our penalty. Can someone say amen? This now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message today is Living Like Christians. Everyone say that. In today's text, Paul shows us through his life in ministry what living like a Christian, listen now, living, okay, living like we've been reconciled looks like. Got that? He shows us through his life in ministry what living like a Christian, what living like, listen, what living like we've been reconciled to God looks like. If you're ready, say yes. 
Six points. Number one is this, the plea. Say that. The plea. Write that down, the plea. We're going to look at verse 1 here. And Paul writes, as God's fellow workers. I love that. I want to stop there. God's fellow workers. And this chapter, chapter 6, continues the thought of chapter 5, verse 20. And so look at, look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Let's go back to that. Paul writes, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, right? As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, say implore you, on Christ's behalf, become reconciled to God. So Paul was cooperating, got to get this now, Paul was cooperating with God in a partnership. Say partnership. Notice he says, as God's fellow workers. And so are we. If you're born again, listen now, listen now, friends, we are cooperating with God in a partnership. We're working together with God. Isn't that awesome? Okay. With him in, uh, in a partnership, a partnership of preaching, partnership of sharing the message of reconciliation. Let's, let's read on. He says, as God's fellow workers, let's read on. We urge you or beseech you or plead with you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, now, what is Paul's fear here of them receiving God's grace in vain? Well, well, the fear is not that they would lose their salvation, listen now, but that they would not effectively carry out the ministry of reconciliation. Follow me here, friends. It, it means failing to speak about Jesus after accepting the message of reconciliation after accepting the message of God's saving grace. I want you to follow me here. Failing to speak on God's behalf makes that grace hollow, null, or void. Friends, if we do not speak the message of reconciliation, what Paul is saying, Paul says that we are, listen now, that we are neglecting our end of the partnership with God and causing God's grace to become an empty thing in our lives. Are you guys with me? And therefore, we become, listen now, walking contradiction, a walking contradiction. Another reason why they were, I would say, receiving God's grace in vain was because these new converted Jews or even Gentiles were living their lives law-oriented rather than grace-oriented. They were living their lives uh, on a works-based salvation, not grace-based salvation. And you see, Paul wanted the Corinthian believers, he wants all of us, all believers to hear his passionate appeal, urging, and pleading us not to squander the opportunities that we are given to speak about the message of reconciliation. If you got it, say got it. Verse 2. And here in verse 2, Paul is quoting Isaiah 49.8. Write that down, Isaiah 49.8. Verse 2. For he, speaking of God, says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. And then Paul, what he does, he adds a final line and says this, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of what? That's it. Salvation. So by quoting and applying Isaiah 49.8, Paul wants them, wants us believers, all believers, to understand the sense of urgency that we have to share this message of reconciliation. Right? Now is that day of salvation. And Paul's saying, not your salvation, you're saved. He's talking to saved believers, so you're saved. Right? Now is the day of salvation for unbelievers. You have the message 
to share with unbelievers. So here's the lesson. Are you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Now is the time. Everyone say that. Now is the time. Go back to the text. I tell you, Paul says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is an existential statement because it's always the time. Right? It's always a time. It was a time then, and it is a time now. Now is the time. Everyone say that. Now is the time for you and I to tell the story of our own reconciliation to God in Christ. Now is the time for people to hear the word of salvation, this amazing, liberating message of reconciliation. Now, if you're saved, say amen. God has committed to us, you and I, friends, the word of reconciliation. And I hope and pray that we're all committed to being God's voice, God's ambassadors, God's spokesperson for this amazing word of reconciliation. We shouldn't wait until it's too late before we share it. Now is the time. D.L. Moody, by his own admission, made a mistake on the 8th of October, 1871, a mistake that he determined never to repeat. It says that he had been preaching in the city of Chicago, and that particular night drew his largest audience yet. His message was this, what will you do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? And by the end of the service, he was tired. He was tired, and he concluded his message with a presentation of the gospel and a concluding statement. Here's a statement. Now I give you a week, a week to think that over, and when we come together again, you will have opportunity to respond. Well, a soloist began to sing, but before the final note, the music was drowned out by clanging bells and wailing sirens screaming through the streets, the great Chicago fire was blazing. In the ash and aftermath, hundreds were dead and over 100,000 were homeless. Without a doubt, some who heard Moody's message that night had died in the fire. He reflected remorsefully that he would have given his right arm before he would ever give an audience another week to think over the message of the gospel. Now is the time. And this is why we give altar calls, friends. This is why we give altar calls. Because we want to give anyone here in this church an opportunity to come to Christ. Right? Now is the time. Now is the time. Amen? That's the plea. You have the message. I have the message of reconciliation, the message of God's grace. Tell it to somebody. Right? The plea, number two, is the priority. Write that down. Say that. Let's look at verse three. The priority, verse three. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So Paul feels it's all important to make it a priority not to put a stumbling block in anyone's way. Listen, Paul was determined to rise above the adversity and carry himself with integrity, say integrity, and confidence. 
Paul was committed, and I love this about Paul, he was committed to preventing anything or anyone from discrediting the ministry, from discrediting his walk with Christ. Now, if you're safe, say amen. We cannot, listen, you got to get this, we cannot allow anything in our lives or anything in our ministry which would give people a reason not to respond to the gospel. We are not to contradict the gospel by, by the way that we live, by the way that we speak, by the way that we act, or by our attitude so that it would cause someone to think less of Christ and think less of the gospel. Nothing by way of our lives should be a detractor from the gospel. Can I get an amen? And sadly, friends, stay with me now, sadly, one of the greatest obstacles to the Christian faith for unbelievers is the Christian. Christians who, who break promises. Christians who live hypocritically. Christians who are unfaithful. Christians who compromise the truth. Christians who are greedy and Christians who are selfish and Christians who act self-righteous. Are you guys with me? You see, the world, and we know this, right? The world loves it when Christians live unrighteously. It gives them ammunition. And they love it when a pastor commits adultery. They love that. They thrive on it when the church treasurer steals from the ministry and is arrested. They revel and celebrate when famous evangelists fall into sin. Why? Because it gives them ammunition. It gives them a reason to scoff, to laugh, and to blaspheme who? God. Oh, they call themselves Christians, and they follow this God? In 2 Samuel, I want, to, I want you to write this down, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. There Nathan came to David, who committed adultery. David committed adultery, and Nathan said to David, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, from the King James Bible, says it like this, Your sins have been forgiven, David. But by this deed, by the adultery, by this deed, you have given the Gentiles, the enemies, a reason to blaspheme God. Here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? The world is watching us. If we call ourselves a fully, devoted followers, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, friends, guess what? The world is watching us. And we need to realize that our lives are being watched and closely scrutinized by the world. And unfortunately, this is now unfortunately, they, speaking of the world, have encountered those who claim Christ and yet live as wicked and as ungodly as the world. Listen, we are to live our lives. If we're born again, live our lives and serve God in such a way that we give no offense, listen now, in anything that would cause anyone to stumble or discredit the ministry of God. If you're saved, say amen. In every single area of our lives, of my life, of your life, of our lives, wherever we are, at all times, say at all times, we are to present ourselves in a way that pleases, that honors, and testifies to the goodness and the grace of God. Someone would say, ah, oh, he or she's authentic. Not perfect, but authentic. Amen? The plea, the priority, number three, is the patience. Say that. Write that down. Patience. And I want to tell you, these next verses, 
dismantle anyone who thinks, this is now, of, of, of ministry or serving God as being easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Verses 4 and 5, you're still with me, say amen. Rather, as servants of God. We're servants. The Christian life is a life of servanthood. Someone say amen. Rather, as servants of God, we commend or approve ourselves in every way. I want you to stop there. Notice, because I want you to notice the list that Paul gives for his being approved for the ministry. So let's read on. In great endurance. Your Bibles might render it as patience. Say patience. In the Greek, that word patience is the word hupomone. Say hupomone. It literally means to stay under the pressure. Write that down. Say, stay under the pressure. It's the idea of endurance instead of simply waiting. Got it? It's the idea of steadfast endurance in adversity and constant strength under difficulty. Now, we all feel pressure in life, right? We do. We all feel it. Pressure to give in. At times, pressure to give up. Pressure to quit. But the mark of a Christian, say that. The mark, come on, say it. The mark of a Christian who has learned how to walk with God and learned to serve in ministry stays under the pressure. In other words, friends, they don't quit. They don't give up. They don't throw in the towel. They hang in there. Because it gets tough. Right? Ministry, the Christian life, gets tough. And by the way, patience, or this word, hupomone, is developed over time in hardship. This, you, you can't buy a book on patience. If you do, it won't work. It won't. It won't work, friends. You know what works? This is what works, and I want you to write this down. Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 3. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, for the King James says this. This is what works. It says that tribulation, hardships, worketh patience. <laughs> Got it? It takes time. Hardship. Let's read on. In troubles, your Bibles might render it as afflictions. That's pressure, strain, or tension that comes from the burdens of life. Then he says, hardships. That's the day-to-day sorrows and struggles of life. And then he says, distresses, or it could be calamities. Situations where there seems no way out. And then verse 5, he says, in beatings. Literally, it means stripes from whips. And rods. Paul was beaten with stripes five times. Then he says imprisonments. Paul was imprisoned seven times. Every time Paul walked into a city, he knew exactly where the prison was. <laughs> he knew. Then it says and riots. We know that's an uprising or attack from a fierce group, right, or a mob, an angry mob. Then he says in hard work. In other words, laboring to the point of exhaustion. Then he says, sleepless nights. Because, this is not because of duty and discomfort and danger. Paul spent some sleepless nights. And then he says, and, and hunger. Going without food because either time or money was lacking. So Paul faced continual conditions of pressure. I mean, right? It's there, right? Pressure, but he never quit. He never gave up. Then throw in the towel. Now, much of what Paul speaks of in these verses is completely foreign to us. Much of it is. Because we will never face anything close to what Paul faced, right? Right? We have suffered nothing compared to many who have gone on before us. 
And yet, and yet, sadly, there are many Christians today who are abandoning God's work, who are deconstructing from the Christian faith. They quit, they give up, they throw in the towel because they got their feelings hurt by another Christian or ridiculed for their faith or because God allowed, didn't cause it, but God allowed a tough circumstance in their life. Therefore, what they do is they blame God and they bail out. And I know some folks like that. But Paul didn't. Paul didn't bail out. He didn't blame God. And that was so God-pleasing and so God-honoring about Paul's experiences. This is what made Paul, listen now, approved by God. Got it? Commended, approved by God. If you're saved, say amen. And I want you to get this. The world is watching us. Listen now to see how you and I, how we handle the difficulties of life. And you see, friends, we are never a better witness. Got to get this. We are never a better witness than when we maintain our commitment to God and his work and his ministry in the midst of trials, difficulties, and the storms of life. So this begs the question, how was Paul able to endure all these things, endure the pressures uh, associated with ministry and with serving Christ? Well, look at verses 6. Seven, I love this. Verses six through seven. In purity, do you get that? That speaks of moral purity. It speaks of integrity. In other words, a clean life. Got it? Then he says understanding. Okay, you might say knowledge, but that's the practical knowledge and awareness of God's word. Then he says patience. That's calm in the midst of of the storm. And he says, and kindness, say kindness. That's goodness, gotta get this, that's goodness and benevolence even when others are abusive, evil, unappreciative, and unthankful. And then he says, and I love this, in the Holy Spirit. Say that. The Holy Spirit, and this is Paul's point, the Holy Spirit is the source of all these qualities that Paul listed. The Holy Spirit gives the needed wisdom and the skill for ministry and for living the Christian life effectively. And he says, and in sincere love. In other words, genuine and pure love that is unlimited, selfless, selfless, and sacrificial. Verse 7, he says this, in truthful speech. In other words, preaching the truth and truthfulness in general. And then he says, and in the power, say power. Well, say it like you have power. Say power of God. Because without the power of God, Paul would have been unable to do anything, anything of lasting value. He needed the power of God. To serve in ministry and to live the Christian life. And he says, with weapons, say weapons, of righteousness in the right hand, say, say right hand, and in the left hand, say left, in the left. You see, equipment for ministry and for living the Christian life was complete. Paul had weapons of righteousness. Weapons of righteousness which, which were both offensive and defensive. The, the, the word, excuse me, the sword, say sword, the sword was held in the right hand and the shield was held in the left hand, ready to ward off the enemy 
whichever direction the enemy comes. Paul was ready. Are you guys with me? And so we know that Paul here, he's referring to what? The armor of God, right? Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Write that down, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. So Paul was ready. That's how he was able to handle the pressures of ministry, the pressures of life, the pressures of serving God. He was well-equipped. Amen? Say the plea. Say the priority. Say the patience. Number four is the paradox. Say that. Because here what Paul does, the paradox, here Paul reveals his passion for ministry through several paradoxes. And so he describes nine contrasting pairs of characteristics. So I want you to follow me here, verses 8 through 10, okay? He says, through glory and what? Dishonor. Then he says, bad report and good report. Genuine yet regarded as imposters. Listen, many people love Paul. They loved him, but there were those who hated him and said, he's a phony, he's an imposter, he's fake. And he writes verse 9, known yet regarded as unknown. You might be unknown to somebody, but you're known by God. Dying and yet we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. Verse 10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich. And love this, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul reveals that ministry in the Christian life is filled with what? With ups and downs. It is, right? Ups and downs. We are faced with acceptance as well as rejection. We are embraced, and other times we are what? Ridiculed. There are times of rejoicing, right, believers? And times of what? Sorrow. Now, if anyone had the chance to be negative and give up and throw the towel and quit, Paul did. But he didn't. He didn't look at things from a typical perspective. Now, he may have been mistreated and rejected by others, and we know that, but he realized that even in loss, he possessed all things in Christ. We all face the changes that life brings. We all do. But even in the midst of these changes, we are still upheld by the righteous hand of God. We are never forsaken by him, so, so don't give up. I don't know what you're facing in life right now, the, the pressures that you're going through in life, through ministry. I'm going through some things right now. My wife and I, we're going through things right now with the loss of her mom and just things going on. But we know that, hey, you know what? We have all things in Christ. So, so don't give up, right? Don't give up. Even in loss, we possess all things in Christ. The plea, the priority, the patience, the paradox, number five is the parent. Write that down. Say that, the parent. <clears throat> because here, if you, if you, as we read the text, here Paul, what he does, he speaks to the Corinthian believers as a loving father to his children. Look at verses 11 to 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. There's his heart, and open wide our hearts to you. Verse 12, we are not withholding our affection from you. Paul loved them. But you, Corinthians, are withholding yours from us. Why, Why were they holding, withholding their love from Paul? Why? Because they had divided hearts. 
They allow, this is now the influence of false teachers, of ungodly people, ungodly situations affect their love for Paul, for the saints, and for God. In verse 13, he says, As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Huh? You see, they had, speaking of the Corinthian believers, they had not admitted their weaknesses as Paul had. And they had not displayed their lives for examination as Paul had. So Paul appealed to them to open wide their hearts as well. Now listen, in spite of all the problems, in spite of all the heartaches, the Corinthian believers caused Paul, even robbing Paul of the love that he deserved, he never stopped loving them. Get that? So here's a lesson. You ready? Here we go. Don't stop loving people. Didn't say you have to like them. Didn't say you have to like them. But don't stop loving them. There are some people in your life, there are some believers in your life that make it difficult for you sometimes, that irk you. But you got to love them. How about our kids? How many times have they hurt us? Don't have to agree with them or approve of what they're doing, but you got to love them. Amen? And Paul, regardless of how they backstabbed him and all this other stuff they did to him, questioning his integrity and credentials, Paul still loved them. Amen? Number six is the prohibition. Say that, the prohibition. Because Paul appeals to the Corinthian believers, this is what he does. He appeals to them to separate, say separate themselves from anything, anything that would hinder their Christian walk. So look at verse 14 with me, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with who? On Believers, I want to stop because the idea of do not uh, be unequally yoked together is based on Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. Deuteronomy 22, 10, where it says, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. You guys with me? It prohibited yoking together two different animals because one would pull one way and the other would pull the other way. They weren't balanced. Are you guys with me? Now, I want to say this. This unequally or unequal yoke or ungodly influence, you got to get this, may come through an unbeliever, a book, a movie, a television show, a magazine, or even, get this now, even through carnal Christian friends. Are you with me? I want to say this. Too many Christians are far too casual and far too careless about the things they allow to influence their lives. So what Paul does is he now elaborates, and I love this, elaborates on this with five examples of what it's like to be unequally yoked. So I want you to follow me here. He says, for what do righteousness or lawlessness and wickedness have in common? Well, the answer is what? None. Right? They're opposites. 
Listen, when you become yoked to an unbeliever, friends, you're trying to make righteousness have something in common with wickedness or lawlessness. It's not going to work. Then he says, or what fellowship or communion can light have with darkness? Well, the answer is what? Say it. None. Light and darkness. Listen now. Light and darkness are also symbolic in Scripture of what? Good and evil. They have nothing in what? Common. So when you become yoked with an unbeliever, you're trying to make light have something in common with darkness. It's not going to mix. Verse 15, if you're still with me, say amen. What harmony, and I want to stop there because in the Greek the word harmony is symphonesis. Say symphonesis. It it means symphony or to agree in sound. Symphony or to agree in sound. So what harmony is there between Christ and Belial. Belial is a word borrowed from the Hebrew, meaning worthlessness or wickedness. And here it's used as a nickname for Satan. So what harmony, in other words, what symphony to agree in sound is there between Christ and Satan? And the answer is what? None. Say none. So try to imagine Jesus sitting down and trying to play a duet with Satan. Huh. Ain't going to work. And that's what we attempt to do when we become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Let's read on. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Did you get that? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Well, the answer is what? None. There's, there's, different, there's a difference in lifestyle, in philosophy, in morals, and in values. Right? Now, now, now stay with me here. Does this mean that we shouldn't have conversations or associations with unbelievers? Of course not. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Luke 7, 34, Jesus, it says that Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Did you get that? But the important thing to note, friends, is that whatever Jesus, wherever, excuse me, wherever Jesus went, sinners were permanently and radically impacted by him. You see, that's the key. That's the key. Who is making the greater impact? Who is the influencer? Who is setting the agenda? That's the key, right? And Jesus always made the greater impact. He was the influencer. He was the one setting the agenda, not the sinner. So Paul's not suggesting that Christians never associate with unbelievers. Hey, we must have contact with the world, unbelievers, friends, right? If we're going to reach them for Jesus, right? It's, listen, it's separation, not isolation. Write that down. It's separation, not isolation. And the principle here is that we are to be in the world, right? It's a good thing in the world, but not of the world. And I've said this many times. It's like a boat, right? A boat in the water is a good thing. But water in a boat, not a good thing. Right? Right? And you see, Paul's warning the Corinthian believers, us, all believers, against forming binding relationships with unbelievers that would hinder or even contaminate us from maintaining a solid Christian witness and the values we know are spiritual values. Warren Wiersbe said this, As Christians, we are not to be isolated, but separated. We cannot avoid contact with sinners, but we can avoid contamination by sinners. 
See, the problem with some Christians is that they think they can be around unbelievers and, and ungodly things as much as they want, thinking that they are strong enough to resist or even evade the influence. Maybe you are strong enough. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of these believers have forgotten what 1 Corinthians 15.33 says. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Or what Romans 12.2 says. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So it needs to come back to the simple question. Are we being conformers? Conform to this world or transformers? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. Hmm? Let me ask you, well, question, question. What are you yoked to? If you're a believer, what are you yoked to? Are you yoked to the word or to the world? Are you yoked to Christ or to our culture? What are you yoked to? Are you a conformer? Or transformer. Let's read on verse 16a. If you're still with me, say amen. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Well, the answer is what? None. None. And by the way, in the Greek, the word agreement is sonka aethis. Say that. Sonka aethis. Say that. Aethis. It means approved by putting together Votes, or the votes, okay? So follow me here. The temple of God, you got to get this, and the temple of idols will never vote for the same person. Got it? Let's read on. For we are the temple of who? The living God. If you're saved, say amen. We are different, right? We are different in that we are the temple of the living God. Meaning, this is now meaning, why are we different? Because the very temple of God the very residence where God lives. So if God lives in us, His Holy Spirit lives in us, right? Then we should be what? Different than that of the world. Paul now quotes from a collection of Old Testament passages to make this case about separation. So I want you to follow me here, verses 16b through verse 17. As God has said, who said? And he quotes Old Testament passages here. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, love that, and they will be my what? Verse 17, therefore, therefore, right? Therefore, since he's God, right? He's our God, and we're his people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no un clean thing. I want to stop there because Paul here, he's quoting Isaiah 52, 11 and Ezekiel 20, verse 41. And friends, if you go back and read that, what happens is God freed the Israelites from slavery to other nations and told them to separate from people, from the people around them to maintain their purity by not even touching forbidden things. Then, he says, he would welcome them. So let's read on. And I will what? Receive you. The word, got to get this, the word receive there means to treat with favor. Just write that down. 
to treat with favor. That's what the word receive there means, to treat with favor. Listen, God is saying this. If you will be separate from this world, separate from this world for my glory, then you will enjoy my favor. My smile, God's simply saying, my smile will be upon your life. And I don't know about you, friends, but I want God's favor in my life, right? I want God's favor. I want his smile upon my life. Don't you? Well, a clean, separated life is how you get that smile on you. Amen. So here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? The lesson is this. Turn away from sin. It's all around us. Turn away from sin. Say that. You are safe. Say amen. Just as we are to refuse to walk with the world, we are also to refuse to walk like the world. We are to be different. In fact, I'll say this. Dare to be different. Dare to be different. Be different. I want to say this. I want you to get this. We're not just to turn away from sin but we are to turn toward God. Right? Get this. Christianity, say that. Christianity is not just a turning from, but a turning to. I'm turning from sin, turning to God. Separate from sin and separate unto God for service and living the Christian life. Amen? Verse 18. And here Paul, what Paul's doing in verse 18, he's quoting Isaiah 43.6. Isaiah 43.6, and the reason why he quotes that, to finally establish that a believer's relationship with God through faith in Christ is that of a child to a father. So he says this, verse 18, I will be a father to you, God says, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Almighty. You, you should underline that, highlight that, circle that. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That phrase, Lord Almighty, means that he's in control of all things. He will dwell with us. Listen now, friends, and be our God, and be our father, and we are his people received as sons and daughters. That should blow your mind. So if he is our father and he's our God, we're going to wrap this up here. If he's our father and our God, then let's act and live like his sons and daughters. Let's act and live like Christians. Amen? Let's all stand and it's...